I named this message, A Man Who Loved the Lord. In this message, we will see the most tragic story in the Bible. It is the story of King Solomon. Solomon's story begins in 1 Kings chapter 1 and ends in chapter 11. 11 long chapters, but I will condense it to three hours. Uh, we read that immediately after Solomon, be Solomon became king, he had his older brother, Adonai, slain, who was a threat to his kingdom, kingship. So here we see that the elevation of Solomon as king is at the expense of his brother Adonai. As Solomon's fortune arises, his brother's Adonai destiny falls. This story of how Solomon became king can also be described in other ways. It is a story of strife between brothers, a story too common in the Bible. First, we see Cain kill Abel, Jacob deceives Esau, Joseph and his brothers who plotted to kill Joseph, Ammon and Absalom who killed his brother, David's two sons. As Genesis has warned, when hostilities between brothers go unchecked, they are capable of spawning and nurturing more divisions, even in the church among brothers. In this story, the strife between brothers has done just that. When other characters enter the story, they too become entangled in this division. Because as friends of one brother, they become enemies of others. And such oppositions divide and multiply like cancerous cells and infect whole families, as we have seen in many of our families. And the sad thing is that this happens in the church. Some brothers would have a disagreement because of some differences they have, so one rejects the other, and as the division continues, others enter that division, and they do they also become entangled in this division. And as friends of one brother, they become enemies of others. And when left unchecked, it will infect part of the church as cancerous cells. In our story, as one brother rises at the expense of the other brother, not only do the people rejoice and play music, but we also hear that the earth quaked in 1 Kings, 110, 140. This quake of the earth may be because of their great rejoicing, but it also may foreshadow something less joyous on the horizon as our story will unfold. As the story closes in chapter 2, we are invited not only to ponder the transition of Solomon to kingship, but also we are drawn to consider the nature of people at play. Here in this campaign of carnage and death, but when there is so much public butchery, that butchery has to be justified. There has to be a good reason for it, for a brother to kill his brother and others for its kingship to be secured. The reason given for this butchery is theological. By this I mean that David's final instruction had to do with the demands of being faithful to God's covenant. 
which has to do with obedience to the law. But the murderer's deeds that follow David's spiritual counsel, counsel makes mockery of God's covenant. Even more disturbing is references to God's favor throughout the story of bloodshed and intrigue. In other words, throughout David and Solomon's self-justifying explanation for murder, there are claims of religious roots such as God's covenant and citation of God's endorsement. It wants us to believe that God endorses bloodshed. We read throughout this story that God's name is always called to justify murder. Yet we hear no instance of God speaking or even the slightest hint of God's revelation in these stories. There's only silence from God. So, with the excess of religious language to justify the slaughter of his brother and others, as we move to chapter 3, where it point, paints the portrait of an ideal king, all the shades of the bloodthirsty king have all but faded. Now the model king of a humble and worthy king has replaced the crude opportunists of the previous story. And let me add that many religions, including Christianity, have used God in religious language to slaughter innocent people, as they did to the Native Americans and to black people. Even in our personal lives, we use religious language such as, the Lord revealed to me that you should be my wife. But a few years later, they're signing divorce papers. See, the story now turns attention to Solomon's actual reign in 1 Kings chapter 3 to 11. But before Solomon's actual reign and before the dream where God reveals himself to Solomon and gives him wisdom and discerning mind, chapter 3 opens with a brief introduction to Solomon's life. Chapter 3 opens up with a brief introduction to Solomon's life. It's like opening up the old archive files of Solomon's life. It's something like when God one day will open up that heavenly record book to reveal our life story. In chapter 3, verse 1, it immediately recounts that Solomon made an alliance, a treaty with the Pharaoh of Egypt and married his daughter. He found security in the nation Egypt that once held Israel in bondage for 400 years. Sounds like many of us, we go back to the things that once held us in bondage. Also, the statement that Solomon loved the Lord in 3.3 is followed in the same verse that Solomon was worshiping in the high places, which in the Old Testament were often associated with apostasy, worshiping false gods. Here it reveals that Solomon's love for the Lord, while still worshiping other gods, forecasts just how fragile his love for the Lord will be. But we can't, but we can't cast stones at Brother Solomon because our love for Jesus can just be as fragile. Because we fail many times. 
As the story opens, Solomon encounters God in a dream. In scripture, dreams and visions were means by which God communicated with people. But at the same time, Deuteronomy 13 warns those who love the Lord to be suspicious of diviners of dreams as they can lead to worship other gods. Like some dreamers you hear on TV who had led many to worship the God of prosperity and consumerism. And let me add that we can't even worship our cell phones or Facebook or Twitter while praising the Lord or when the preacher is speaking. So here in this dream, God initiates the encounter by saying to Solomon, ask what I should give you in verse 5. What is so strange in Solomon's encounter with God is that God takes no account of the idolatrous Solomon we have been introduced in the first four verses in chapter 3. It seems that God has failed to recall the half-hearted, idolatrous, sinful Solomon who shed blood to secure his royal position. Even though this failure on God's part to recall what we have read concerning Solomon's and idolatrous behavior, there is also comfort for us. Because here, we see God who seeks out Solomon according to what Solomon needs, rather than what Solomon deserves. And it is no different with us. God saw what we could become by God's grace, not what we deserved. Uh, the story continues by Solomon asking the Lord to give him a he hearing heart to govern God's people and be able to discern between good and evil. The story tells us that it pleased the Lord that Solomon asked this in verse 10. This is the first time God has communicated with Solomon. Though we have heard both David and Solomon make claims about God's word and God's promise, here we hear a first glimpse of what God desires. And because of what Solomon has asked, God will lavish him with gifts in excess of Solomon's requests. In addition to this, God will offer him wisdom. God says in verse 12, I give you a wise and discerning mind. In the Bible, wisdom is a kind of God's presence, meaning that it can only be received, not acquired. That's my wife. She's got enough wisdom for both of us. <laughs> but in verse 14, the offer of long life to Solomon has a big if. If. God conditions the length of days for the king upon Solomon's faithfulness to God. In verse in chapter 4, it says that God's promise of prosperity and world fame has been fulfilled. And that Solomon was wiser than anyone else. Just like my wife. In chapter 4, Solomon begins a massive building uh, program. In verses 1 through 6, it gives us the names of Solomon's high officials. This list concludes with the name Adoniram. He was in charge of forced labor. Even though the name was new, the practice is not. It seems that Solomon, with all his wisdom, would have broken with the policies of his father David, who also employed forced labor, which would have been a wiser decision. 
Solomon's use of forced labor will ultimately divide the kingdom into nations north and south. It wasn't uh, too long ago that we had forced labor in the cotton fields of the south. And history tells us that it didn't go well for those in the cotton fields. Now we have a more lenient forced labor in the Central Valley. Without forced labor or cheap labor, the rich can't get richer. Also, in 425, it tells us that Judah and Israel lived in safety, all of them under their vines and fig trees, meaning that all were living a good life. Here we have to be a little suspicious because how can all be experiencing a good life when tens of thousands are subject to forced labor? I wonder if those Africans in the cotton fields believed they were experiencing a good life. Also, in 1 Kings 4.26, it tells us that Solomon had acquired 40,000 horses for his chariots. But in Deuteronomy 17, 15 through 17, it states, you may, set over, you may set over you a king whom the Lord will choose, even though he must not acquire many horses for himself, and he must not acquire many wives for himself, or else his heart will turn away. So even though God had given Solomon the gift of wisdom, Solomon seems to dis have discounted the demands of faithfulness to the covenant and the obligation to rule justly that was placed by him by God. Perhaps in Solomon's mind, it was only a dream. Also, the reason the kings such as Solomon were prohibited to acquire horses and chariots was because those were the weapons of the enemy. And to trust in the weapons of the enemy meant not trusting in God. In Psalms 20, verse 7, it says, Some trust in horses and, and chariots, but our trust is in the name of our Lord our God. Solomon, Solomon must have forgotten about this verse, like he forgot about other scriptures. But we can't be too hard on poor Solomon, because we do the same. At times, we also get amnesia. The Apostle Paul understood this. That's why he said, put on the whole armor of God. And then he says again, for our weapons of our warfare are not human weapons. In other words, to trust anything in this world other than Jesus means not trusting in God and Jesus who provides all that we need. Now in chapters uh, 6 to 9, Solomon begins construction of the temple which is a hallmark of Solomon's era. And although the temple appears to be built in the name of the Lord and in praise to God, Solomon is the one who is most often named here and ultimately the center of praise. By this I mean that Solomon acquired forced labor to build the temple. But the account records that Solomon built, Solomon made, Solomon carved, and Solomon overlaid meaning that all credit is assigned to Solomon the king. This is an example how Solomon was influenced by other kings outside of Israel who take credit such as Pharaoh of Egypt for building their kingdoms. So like the Pharaoh of Egypt, Solomon takes credit for building the temple 
and not God. But again, let's not be so hard on Solomon. Because many times we take the credit for our accomplishments as Christians. But in reality, it is only, it is only by God's grace that we have accomplished anything. Especially as rejects of society we once were. In chapter 1, chapter 7, 1, it tells us that the palace for Solomon took 13 years to build. Solomon's palace took 13 years to build. In sharp contrast to Solomon's palace, the temple of the Lord only took seven years to build. We read that Solomon's palace consisted of five buildings, but the one that gets more attention is the house of the forest of Lib. Lebanon. Most believe it was a banquet hall. It was approximately 150 feet long and 75 feet wide, meaning that this one house in the palace was greater than the size of the temple, which was only 90 by 30 feet. So when we compare the temple to Solomon's palace, the temple would be like Solomon's private chapel. This reveals where Solomon's heart was. Also, that this report on the palace distracts attention from the temple is a reminder that Solomon is being distracted from focusing on the Lord. But it also reminds us that the things of the world could distract us from our devotion from the Lord. Even our own ministry can distract us from our love and devotion to the Lord like it did Solomon. Now we're going to move to chapter 11, where all the claims or everything that Solomon uh, possessed, such as wealth, wisdom, and fame surrounding Solomon, comes to an end. With chapter 11, all the praiseworthy accomplishments, such as the temple, his palace, that we see in the, in the chapters before chapter 11, it concludes with a pathetic portrait of King Solomon. A brief summary in chapter 11 of Solomon's activity, makes Solomon responsible for God's coming judgment, which will result in the division of the kingdom. But we must ask, how could such a sparkling career of Solomon come to such a horrible reversal? We ask this question that we ourselves won't fall into the same deceptive trap that Solomon fell into. We've seen that Solomon exempted himself from following the covenant, God's law. It seems like as if he forgot that there was laws that he had to follow in order to stay faithful to the Lord. And because of this, he fell into apostasy, a turning away from the Lord. And as a result, he reaped God's rapid judgment and punishment. The kingdom will be divided. Here we see that the moral decline of one man affected the whole nation. Just like our moral failure not only affects us, but also our spouse, our children, and members of the church. There are two sections in chapter 11. The first section are from verses 1 to 13. Here the waywardness or apostasy or the moral decline of Solomon is clearly stated. In verses 1 through 8, it stays. 
11, 1 to 8, it states, The king Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabites, Amorites, Adamites, Sidonians, and Hittite women, who the Lord had said to the Israelites, You shall not enter into measure with marriage with them, neither shall they with you, with you, for they shall surely incline your heart to follow other gods. But you, for they will surely... But Solomon clung to these in love. Among his wives were 700 princesses and 300 mistresses. And his wives turned away his heart. For when he was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not true to the Lord his God. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Then Solomon built high places for Chirmash in the abomination of the Amorites on the mountain east of Jerusalem. Here, Solomon has turned to many foreign women and made them his wives, which is an explicit violation of God's covenant. In the second section from verses 14 to 40, it details God's judgment against Solomon for violation of God's law, especially the law against apostasy, worshiping other gods. The story quickly introduces God's anger with Solomon and the consequences sensing of him for his blame and faithfulness. But in the first section, in verses 12 to 13, God will soften the deadly blow to Solomon because for the sake of David and Jerusalem, God will give one tribe into the hand of Solomon his son. So even though Solomon will be punished for his infidelity, God still remains faithful to his covenant promise. The line of David will endure. And let me add that many times I have failed God. Even after so much grace in my life, I can't count how many times I've failed God. But he just continues to pour out his grace on me like a grace addict. And that's why I need to praise the name of Jesus because I stand amazed that I'm still here. In verses 14 and verse 23, we read, Then the Lord raised up an adversary against Solomon. But before chapter 11, in chapters 9 and 10, it pointed to Solomon's national, international renown. But in chapter 11, all that fame has been overturned and only Solomon himself is to blame, not his wives. In our case, not our wife. In the opening verses of chapter 11, it gives us the results of the turning away from the Lord that has attracted Solomon during his entire, entire career or ministry. Immediately, in 11.1, it tells us that King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh. This final chapter of Solomon's life begins by reminding us of the beginning of Solomon's life as a ruler. Back in chapter 3, 1 to 3, it had said that Solomon had begun his rule by taking a foreign woman, the daughter of Pharaoh, as his wife. But at the same time, two verses later, it said that Solomon loved the Lord. In Deuteronomy 7, 1 to 4, it forbid Israelites from marrying foreign women. The reason given was the temptation to serve other gods. Therefore, at the beginning of Solomon, 
as king, there was a decision placed on Solomon's heart. Will he love the Lord with all his heart, or will his heart be attracted to foreign women, which the law forbid? And this is a decision that we as Christians have to make throughout our entire Christian life. Because there will be many times in our Christian life that things in the world will want to steal that love we have for the Lord. Solomon teaches us that loving the Lord doesn't exempt us from loving other things in the world that will make our love for Jesus wax cold. Throughout Solomon's life, he failed to discern between good and evil. The choices Solomon uh, made again and again over the course of his life is clear because the final assessment that unfolds in verses 1 to 8 is less about breaking one law in Deuteronomy as it is about his repeated choices that resulted in a total waywardness. Polygamy is not the issue since that was an accepted practice in Israel and the ancient world. Failure to trust in the Lord is the crime of Solomon. The involvement with women from other surrounding kingdoms is what indicts Solomon because such intermarriages grew out of international alliances by which nations secured themselves before enemy threats. Therefore, Solomon's guilt lies in placing its trust in the power of others rather than the power of God. We don't have to make any alliances with anything in this world because everything we need is found in Jesus. Also, the number of wives Solomon had, 700 princesses and 300 mistresses, even among ancient practice, is unreasonable and unscrupulous, to say the least. This speaks of Solomon as one who had lost touch with reality and with relationships. Here, for Solomon, no human relationship or care exists. In Solomon's life, women have been reduced to a commodity or a thing to exchange and to possess, as many husbands do, and what pornography does. Solomon's love for foreign women in such number, which adds up to 1,000, does not speak of any intimate caring, but as one who has lost loving, intimate sensibility to women and only uses women as possession and obsession. Again, as pornography does. As husbands, as husbands know, it is hard for us to sustain our total affection toward our wife, let alone 1,000. <laughs> Except for Pastor Greg. <laughs> because the rest of us fail at every point, at least I do, except Pastor Greg. So here we see that excess, excess has defined Solomon's ambition in life. Throughout his life, we see, have seen Solomon caught up in amassing luxuries and possessions. Solomon believed in more, more gold, more silver, more palaces, more chariots and horses, more food, and of course, more women. One good thing we could say about Solomon, 
He did not discriminate. He embraced all women far or near. All were welcome in his bedroom. He had an open bedroom policy. At least there's one thing we can say good about him. Therefore, the unbelievable number of wives he possessed symbolizes more than his insistent violation of the law against acquiring many wives. It speaks of Solomon, whose heart that is driven by excess and excess that controlled his entire life. America is full of excess, and it wants us to believe that the more we have, the more we have in excess, the more our life will be full of happiness. That's the world's gospel. But Solomon, the teacher in Ecclesiastes, after he experienced everything in life, such as wealth, power, women, 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 pleasure, and wisdom, tells us that all is vanity of vanities. Nothing satisfies. Nothing delivers the goods. Nothing fulfills nothing. So at the end of Solomon's life, in Ecclesiastes, Solomon begins to smash every object of ultimate trust, such as money, sex, power, position, and wisdom. Even in our own attempt to become righteous, because only Jesus could do that. And at the end of Solomon's life, Solomon ends by saying, Fear God and keep his commandments, for that is the whole duty of everyone. Solomon, at the end of his life, realized that a heart so distracted is a heart not true to the Lord his God. Because in 1 Kings 11:4 it says, For when Solomon was old, his wife turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not true to the Lord his God. The Solomon who loved the Lord in the beginning is now following false gods except the true God. All the infidelity and immorality that has been dressed in luxury and gold and hiding behind a false reputation has come to light here in chapter 11. Now at the end of his life, Solomon's sinfulness is before him. And the consequences of his unfaithfulness will shape his legacy. But a question lingers, how could this happen to someone who loved the Lord? Someone who had two times had a personal encounter with the Lord. And in both these times, God has impressed upon Solomon the need to keep the covenant and his laws. Solomon forgot, like we at times forget, that the laws are not ends in themselves. Laws are only the beginning or the vehicle to an intimate relationship with Jesus. Keeping the law makes a relationship with God possible. Solomon is not punished, not because he has broken the law. Rather, it is the cumulative effects of his violation of the law that led him to his judgment. By this I mean that the many bad small choices over the course of his life had eventually mushroomed to his total defect. Solomon's complete and total about face. And that could happen to us if it happened to Solomon. The man who at the beginning once loved the Lord is now the man who at the end of his life has turned away from the Lord. The question, how could this happen? All we need to do 
is look at our own lives. Look in our heart and count how many times we have failed the Lord and been unfaithful to him. Do the math. And it would be hard to condemn Solomon without condemning ourselves. Let me finish with a few comments. We have seen that ungodly oppressive policies such as forced labor along with apostasy is what led to divine judgment. But many times we, we can say that perhaps God's punishment was too harsh given all that Solomon had accomplished. Maybe he deserved more mercy than what God had gave him. But if we consider how Solomon accomplished his goals, such as becoming king by murdering his brother and others to secure his kingdom and building the temple and his palace with forced labor and securing his kingdom from enemies by making alliances with them, by marrying foreign princesses and marrying foreign women. When we look at the dark side of Solomon, perhaps it is precisely on account of all that Solomon has done at the end of his life, that his punishment was justified and long overdue. Perhaps the judgment against Solomon, long overdue, speaks not so much of the harshness of God, but rather is a witness to the mercy and patience on the part of the Lord. Again, let's look at our heart and count how many times God has shown mercy and patience with us in our rebellion both before we were Christians, even in our rejection of Jesus, and as Christians for our disobedience and small things, which in time eat away the love we have for the Lord. Apostasy was not simply Solomon's one-time sinful choice, deserving God's punishment. Rather, it was a culmination of a series of bad choices that gradually turned Solomon away from the Lord. What began with a few minor transgressions in Solomon's life, when left unchecked, eventually mushroomed into a full-blown about-face. It tells us that Solomon loved the Lord, and loving the Lord is the heart of relational faith. But love the Lord could never exist without the demands of loving your neighbor. Love the Lord must take place by expressing care for others not rejecting others. In principle, Solomon seemed to understand this because when he comes before the Lord, both in a dream and in the temple, at his dedication, the people and their well-being are the focus of his prayers. Solomon asked to have an understanding mind to govern a great people. God grants him that and much more. With God's assurance for Solomon's own well-being, wealth and honor, Solomon is free to set his attention on governing the people with a wise and understanding heart. But instead, he oppresses his own people, he slaughters family members, he marries foreign women, and he worships other gods. When we compare the substance of his prayer life with his public life or his real life, we see a portrait of Solomon whose spiritual life was bankrupt. His life was in contradiction with the substance of his prayer. But we're no different than Solomon. Because many times, our life don't match up with our prayers. Husbands, how many times have we broken our marriage vows? 
to love our wives. Love which is patience. Love which is kind. Love which does not insist on its own way. Let me repeat that one again. Love which does not insist on its own way. Love which is not irritable, not to mention lust. When I match my prayer life with the above, many of my prayers fall under the category of bankrupt. Ask my wife, except for Pastor Greg, of course. The story tells us that Solomon loved the Lord, and I'm not going to dispute that, because in my disobedience as a Christian, I did love the Lord. But we see that Solomon's real life exposed Solomon's prayer life as a facade or even a fraud, like ours. What happened to Solomon is that over the course of a lifetime, a hunger for power grew. Eventually, the effects of such a life exposed itself as sin. And the name of this sin, if it continued in one's life, is apostasy. This is the story of Solomon and his legacy. Perfectly, it won't be ours. Let's pray.